Hello and welcome to episode 183 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in Vienna, Virginia. This is Ben Olson. With me is Nathan Fox in Los Angeles. How's it going, Nathan? I'm great. I'm a little bit sick, so I'm apologizing to the listeners if I'm uh, hacking up a lung during the show. But no, other than that, I'm good. Okay, cool. So today we're going to do Instagram Live in, a, in an hour here, I guess. Yeah, that's going to be exciting. Second half of the show, we'll um, fire up the video and answer a bunch of questions for the people who RSVP'd to the Insta thing and then uh, answer whatever questions people chime in on, I guess, on Instagram. Yeah. Before that, we're going to do another LSAT fundamental. Today is going to be focused on assumptions. It's titled Assumption Deep Dive. We'll also talk about this anxiety survey from LSAC, which, by the way, when I started reading those questions, it that induced anxiety itself. Like, like. It did. It, I, I found it to be a fascinating little peek behind the curtain to like what's going on. I mean, I'm, it's pure speculation, which mm. we do regularly on the show, but um, just to sort of think about what the LSAC is thinking based on the questions they're asking. Yeah. So yeah, that, that'll be fun, I think. Yeah, let's break it down. Um, we have a lot of events coming up. Hell yeah, uh, we this, do. What is today? Oh, today's the 6th. So this is going to come out, thankfully, before this. Um, March 11th. What is that? Is that a Tuesday or something? Uh, that's a Monday, and I will. that's this coming Monday, and I will be at... Uh, so when you're hearing this, if you listen on the day, uh, mm-hmm. I will be at Berkeley, uh, there's a pre-law. It's ULHS, which I don't know that I've undergraduate law honors society. How about that? Got to be that. I don't know. <laughs> anyway, honorific enough. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So anyway, a bunch of people have uh, already RSVP'd for that. There's an RSVP link on our show page, thinkinglset.com. But yeah, come out tonight um, and see me on campus at UC Berkeley at 7 p.m. Great. Yeah, and then. I will see you in Las Vegas on March 15th. We're teaching a class on March 16th and 17th. That's Saturday and Sunday from 12 p.m. to 7 p.m. If you have not registered for that, the window is closing quickly. So it's $3.95, but if you're a Demon subscriber or one of our classes, it's only $2.95. Yeah, that's going to be fun. Do you have anything to say about that? No, just this is the last uh, show before the live class. So looking forward to seeing you there. Um, We're going to have special guest Rachel Gezerse there talking about how to hustle your way into a law job. We're going to do prep test 86 together, right? And Mm -hmm. uh, discuss all those questions. Um, It's going to be fun. We got drinking LSAT scheduled for uh, Friday night. Annalisa picked a bar in the container District is that what she said? Uh, oh, Container Park. We're gonna go to Oak and Ivy on Friday night. Um, that is the fifteenth for drinking LSAT. Uh, that's around nine o'clock. We are also gonna do dinner before that. If you want to meet up for dinner, we'll f- we'll figure out somewhere within walking distance to the Oak and Ivy in Container Park. Um, if you RSVP for a drinking LSAT, you'll be able to chime in about whether you're gonna come out to dinner. We're like working on trying to pick a spot for that. Whether or not you're signed up in the class, we'd love to see you on Friday night uh, just to mingle. And then, yeah, class all day Saturday and all day Sunday. Yeah. And then nothing better than Saturday, March 30th. That is the next official LSAT. If you're gearing up for that, good luck. If not, the June test is just around the corner. On, let's see here, Sunday, April 14th, I'll be giving a similar talk at UVA at 4 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, I'm, I'm coming, Ben, tentatively. I'm coming. 
Oh, you're coming. Okay, cool. Yep. Yeah. So maybe both of us will be giving a talk and definitely having fun afterward. Regardless, they say that, um, no, no, like 30 or 40 people come to these meetings regularly. So hopefully we can get a few more. It might be kind of a big crowd. That would be fun. Cool. So that's again, uh, Sunday, April 14th. We also have the RSVP link in on Instagram and on thinkinglset.com. April 19th, uh, that's a Friday. Oh, okay, that's when the scores are released for March. On Tuesday, April 23rd, you're giving a talk at Seattle University at 12.30 p.m. Um, anything you want to say about that? No, it's just going to be, you know, I'm on tour doing my uh, talk about the conversion to the digital LSAT. So um, kind of the same talk we've been given. Is that what we're doing at UVA? Yeah, exactly. Cool. Cool. Yeah, looking forward to it. I think it will... I, I told I told the UVA representative that I was talking about talking to. I said, "Hey, look, we can focus on changes to the LSAT in 2019, but honestly, that's a pretty quick discussion. The reality is, people can ask about anything, anything from the test to law school admissions to personal statement stuff. We've done so much of this over the last couple of years that I feel ready and excited to talk about whatever people want to learn about." Yeah, well, that's how our stuff always is, right? I mean, we have some prepared content, but mostly people just chime in with tons of questions. So yeah. it's, it's always going to be a uh, LSAT class and a personal statement workshop and you know just law school admissions generally. So yeah, look forward to seeing you wherever you are. Yeah. Um, if you have questions, you can always email the show at help at thinkinglsat.com. Uh, Sarah and Annalisa take that email and they direct you to an answer to your question if we've talked about it before or put it on the show if um, it's new or has a twist that's uh, worth talking about. So please email us there. Uh, you can listen to the show on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher. You can even go to thinkingelsite.com. Some people have been uh, putting comments there as well. Hit the five stars while you're there. Subscribe, hit the five stars, leave a review, help us yeah. out. Yeah, I, I've noticed that a lot of people have been leaving us very good reviews lately. Thank you. The reviews continue to um, pile up, and that's helpful. Uh, but written reviews uh, more recently have been negative, which is fine. Um, but it kind of distorts, I think, how everything looks. Because, like, you know, iTunes sorts those reviews based on what's most recent. And um, I actually wanted to read a couple of those uh, reviews on the show sometime. Maybe we don't have time today because of the Instagram Live. But just uh, hear what people are upset about. Talk about that. <laughs> see what we think. Read all our bad reviews and respond to them. Yeah, it was some of them. I'm down for that. I am totally down. And then, um, you know, we can, we can change. We're open. We have, what was it that you used to say? Strong opinions loosely held? Yeah. I mean, um, I, hey, I've always listened to the feedback that I get on Yelp or um, any reviews anywhere, like reviews of my books or whatever. It, it, I, I take that to heart. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only thing I'm not going to take to heart is if you tell me to stop swearing. Because fuck that. <laughs> but if you, if you, if there's something that I do that you don't like the way I do it, like I'm, I'm, hey, I'm in business. I'm, I'm very happy to, and I want to be, you know, the best teacher I can be. So I'm, I'm open to, to growing and learning. Yeah, yeah, of course. So um, some of that will be kind of fun and instructive as well. But if you also have 
If you like the show and you want to write something, that could be helpful for future <laughs> potential listeners. <laughs> and our egos. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you. All right. So we I just got off a call with the demon uh, developers. LSATdemon.com. LSAT .com. Yeah, if you're not familiar with that. Uh, a couple things. One, Max is still encouraging people to sign up for the Slack group. It's a great way to get instant feedback to provide instant feedback on your experience with the daemon. It's also a great way to get updates on exactly what's happening with the developers because Max and I are both working with the developers honestly daily. And so we can tell you when the particular bug that you're encountering will be fixed or likely be fixed. Just today, we rolled out preview.com lsatdemon.com. So if you have an LSAT demon account and um, you want to see what updates are coming out soon, you can go there. Uh, you can just use your same login and it will give you the most, re most recent uh, version of LSAT demon. And we're using that in part to also get your feedback before it gets rolled out to the live site. That It's kind of like a, a testing area, if you will. But it is more stable than the actual development server that we're using. But in any case, if you go to preview.lsatdemon.com, for those of you who like to have the latest uh, updates before they're even released to everyone else, that's where to go. And then please give us feedback in Slack. So Max will send you an email. If you have not gotten that email from Max, email the show or email me at ben at strategyprep.com and uh, we'll make sure that you get into that Slack group. Okay, and uh, yeah, we fixed a lot of things that we talked about last week and I'm excited to see that rolled out soon. That's all I have to say about the demon, I guess right now. Okay, cool. Awesome. Yeah. Are these announcements that we want to talk about or we're no, I think we're good. Uh, I guess the best of thinking else at, yeah. uh, we're okay. still getting submissions for, we're going to produce a uh, best of show. Um, so there's, it's available on the Facebook page. There's a link right to it. Okay. I, I have a nomination for that, by the way. Okay, what is it? One is I'm thinking of when Seth interrupted our show. I, <laughs> um, I remember getting interrupted. I don't remember why he was interrupting. It was because he wanted to watch Octonauts. <laughs> okay, perfect. That was when we were in uh, Costa Rica, actually. So. Oh, wow, damn. Yeah, good times. Cool, so LSAT Fundamentals, Assumption Deep Dive. Yeah, just so people know what we're doing, we're after 10 years each of teaching the LSAT, we're sort of rethinking the way we structure the lessons and the things that we really want to talk about. It's changed a, a lot in the last 10 years, not the test, <laughs> but our understanding of the test has changed a lot. We're getting further and further away from LSAT dogma and more into like, well, here's what actually helps people. So today we're going to talk about assumptions, I guess, generally. Yeah. What, what is an assumption? That's a very good question. It's something that a lot of people, I think, assume <laughs> that they know, but when they try to describe it, they actually don't. Uh, an assumption is simply an unstated premise. In other words, it's a piece of evidence that supports the arguer's main conclusion or it can yeah it supports the arguments the argument the arguer's main conclusion but it's something that the person forgot to say so it's something yeah that's all it is it's a piece of evidence that was left out awesome 
I, another way of thinking about that, yeah. I mean, I just say assumption means missing piece. It's okay. a mm-hmm. missing piece. But yeah, missing premise. Mm-hmm. And then you have to understand that there's different types. Yes. Uh, and this is where people get twisted around. But assumptions, actually, there's there's a variety of assumptions. Uh, the LSAT explicitly asks about sufficient and necessary assumptions. But there can be assumptions that are neither, I guess. That's kind of like a strengthening question. But I think what's most important is to focus on these sufficient and necessary assumptions and what that exactly means, and which is, by the way, different from necessary and sufficient conditions. And yeah. it seems like whenever I start talking about necessary and sufficient assumptions, people say, wait, wait, so <laughs> is that like the necessary condition? It's like, nope, um, really doesn't have anything to do with each other at all. Well, I mean, you can use the, the, your, your understanding of what sufficient means and your understanding of what necessary means definitely can help you to understand the sufficient and necessary assumption question types. Sure. Sufficient, we said when we did our conditional reasoning um, fundamental, we said that sufficient means enough to prove. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. An a, a sufficient assumption is if we have an argument, mm-hmm. the sufficient assumption is the one that is enough to prove the conclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And we said that necessary means something that must be true. Yeah. So a necessary assumption is a missing piece that must be true in order for the argument to possibly make sense. Yeah. But the difference is, you know, let, let's back up just a second. Okay. And we, I think we've gone through this in the show before. So I think we can do this actually kind of quicker this time. Sure. And I get so much into the weeds with it. But if I were to tell you that here's my uh, argument and this argument is incomplete, okay? If I just said um, X plus two equals four, Mm -hmm. that's just a conclusion basically, right? Yeah. Um, But if I said X plus two equals four, I think everyone who has gone to school past the seventh grade goes X equals two is the missing piece. Yep. And they're right. That is an assumption of the argument. That's the obvious missing piece of the argument. And remember, Mm -hmm. assumption just means missing piece. Yeah. And so X plus two equals four, missing piece, X equals two. The question is, is that sufficient or is it necessary or is it both sufficient and necessary? And how would you know? Mm -hmm. So you want to walk through it? Sure. So... Well, so your math example is actually something that's not necessarily intuitive to me. When I think about that, when I think about x equal, equals 2, I see that as both necessary and sufficient. That's because it is. Yeah. The reason why you know that is because if x does equal 2, then that's sufficient information to prove that x plus 2 equals 4. So sure. x equals mm-hmm. 2 is sufficient. If x does not equal 2 then X plus two cannot equal four. The argument loses, the equation loses. Mm-hmm. And so X equals two is also a necessary assumption of X plus two equals four. It's yeah. sufficient because if it's true, it wins. <clears throat> it's necessary because if it's false, it loses. Okay. And that's the difference between a sufficient assumption and a necessary assumption. It's important to point out, and the reason why I like the X plus two equals four example 
is that on an easier assumption question, it won't actually even matter sometimes whether they ask you for a sufficient assumption or whether they ask you for a necessary assumption. They can just ask you for the assumption of the argument and it's like pretty obvious, right? In the example of X plus two equals four, if they said which one of the following if assumed would allow the conclusion to be properly drawn, Mm -hmm. that's a sufficient assumption question stem. Yeah. You'd go, oh, X plus two, that makes the argument win. And you would be correct. Mm -hmm. But if they said which one of the following is an assumption on which the argument relies, that's a necessary assumption question stem. The analysis there is supposed to be which one if false makes the argument lose. But you might just go, oh, missing piece, X equals two. Mm-hmm. That, that makes the argument win. And, and what you would actually be doing there is the wrong analysis, but getting the question right anyway. Yeah. So I think this is why people are so bad at teaching assumption questions is because you can get them right for the wrong reason. And for so sure. even LSAT teachers and LSAT books fuck it up because they get their wires crossed on what the two different modes of analysis are. Mm-hmm. And the result is when you get better at the test, like I see students all the time who they can't break into the one seventies and they still miss sufficient assumption questions. Like they're getting one sixty eight, but they don't get sufficient assumption questions. Right. Mm-hmm. And it makes me want to shoot myself. Cause it's like sufficient assumption questions are so easy. Mm-hmm. They're so yeah. easy because they're so predictable. Like if you're missing necessary assumption questions, I get it because those are harder because it's a different analysis. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I'm talking a lot. Why don't you stop? No, no. Well, you're exactly right. I mean, those test takers that you're talking about, they often look for the answer that is both necessary and sufficient. They're looking for that perfect fit. And they're like, well, that answer D, it's like too strong, right? It's too extreme. And they say something like, that doesn't have to be true. And you're like, you're right. It doesn't have to be true. But the question never asked you for what had to be true or what had to be necessary. It asked for what if it were true, would enable the conclusion to be properly drawn. And so that's why you're eliminating a great answer. You're eliminating it because it does fail <laughs> the you know, necessary to, test. To, to continue with my example, if the argument, if the entire argument is X plus two equals four, and they ask you for a sufficient assumption, if they mm-hmm. say which one of the following, if true, would allow the conclusion to be properly inferred, mm-hmm. the answer basically has to say, X equals two. It has to. Now it could also say X equals one plus one or something like that. You know, something that means X equals two, mm-hmm. but it has to prove that X equals two or else that is not going to be the correct answer on a necessary assumption question. They can hide that answer a lot easier. If they say which one of the following is an assumption on which the argument depends They're asking you for something that has to be true or else the argument will fail. Mm -hmm. The correct answer could be something like X is not a billion. Yeah. The correct answer could also be something like X is a number under 10. Yeah. They could say something like X is a whole number. Mm -hmm. X is not negative. Any of those things, if false, would make the equation fail. Mm Mm-hmm. And you could sit here and come up with infinite necessary assumptions. There can be infinite correct answers for a necessary assumption question, but it's a lot harder for them to write correct answers for sufficient assumption questions. The the answers for sufficient assumption questions are extremely predictable. 
Yeah. The answers for necessary assumption questions are not predictable sometimes at all because they can just be the opposite of something that would make the argument fail. You would never predict, you know, um, X is not pi. Mm -hmm. X is not pi is necessary in order for X plus two to equal four. Yeah. And the way you see that is if X were pi, it would make the argument fail. Yeah. So it's just, it's a different analysis that people don't, they have a hard time wrapping their heads around it until they get it. And then once they get it, I don't know, you get people going, Oh, that's all there is to it. And kind of, yeah. Hey, I have a question for you. In your sure. example, do you have a, a, an example of an answer that would be sufficient, but not necessary? Yeah. Um, you know, X equals, uh, X and Y equal two. X equals Y equals two is sufficient, oh, but sure. not necessary. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because of the, the Y component. Yeah. Yep. They, yeah. They could, I mean, it could be a equals B equals C equals D equals X equals two. Mm-hmm. Well, fine. I don't care about ABCD, but X equals two is the part that makes the argument win. So they yeah. can get crafty and they do sometimes get crafty with the correct answer on sufficient assumptions. But yeah. the point is if it is a sufficient assumption question, you should really be able to predict that answer. Yeah. And you should insist on, Hey, this answer has to prove that X equals two mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. I'm not picking it period. Yeah. Yeah. And so it can throw in extra garbage. You know, mm-hmm. it can say, um, it, it's, it's raining today in Los Angeles and X equals two. Yeah. That's fine. Yeah. But because you can't have an answer that's too strong yeah. for sufficient assumption questions, right? Sufficient yeah. assumption questions prefer overpowered. And if you prove too much, that's fine. As long as you prove the thing that we needed to prove in order to make the argument win, we just have to make the argument win. Yeah. And X equals two is the way we get there. Yeah. Necessary assumption questions are completely different. They're not about making the argument win. They're about protecting the argument from loss. Mm-hmm. Which one, if false will make the argument lose is the analysis you need to be doing on necessary assumption questions. But it, it's a little tricky because I, I don't want people to overcomplicate it on the real easy questions. You know, if you spot a glaring hole in the argument, yeah, that's the answer, mm-hmm. right? That's always the answer. If there's a big glaring hole in the argument, that's just going to be the answer. But, but it gets more subtle when you get, you know, into harder questions, harder, sufficient assumption questions will have necessary assumptions as wrong answers mm-hmm. and harder, necessary assumption questions will have sufficient assumptions as wrong answers. The fact that it's sufficient doesn't make it wrong for a necessary assumption question. The fact that it's not necessary (laughs) makes it wrong for a necessary assumption question. Because you have to have, yeah, yeah, you have to have the two different modes of analysis. It's critical. This is one of the things that I do the most with private tutoring students, by the way, is to like Mm -hmm. really get them over the hump on sufficient assumption questions versus necessary assumption questions. It's shocking how many smart people, good readers, this is an LSAT technicality, right? It's like, this is a mm-hmm. thing that a lot of people don't really grasp the difference between what makes an argument win. That's mm-hmm. a sufficient assumption question and which one has to be true or else the argument's going to fail, which yeah. is a necessary assumption question. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a, it comes back to um, the misunderstanding of sufficient necessary and this desire to make necessary basically sufficient, <laughs> right? It's like how we use it in our everyday speech. Yeah, you have to have a firm grasp on conditional logic. You have to understand the difference between a sufficient condition and a necessary condition. 
sufficient proves something mm-hmm. necessary has to be true yeah. or else the sufficient can't be true. I would add that it, you talk about how necessary assumption questions are asking you what, if it were not true, would destroy the argument. Another way of asking that is also just what must be true. Um, and I say this because a lot of times when I'm going through the necessary assumption answer choices, first, I'm just asking myself, does this have to be true? If this argument is going to have any chance of surviving, does this answer choice have to be true? Or in other words, does the person who made this argument have to agree with or accept this answer choice as true? I like that mm -hmm. to a point. Okay. The point where I, I'm, I get nervous about it is that it can be something that the speaker never even contemplated. Absolutely. Which is why I'm saying to myself, is this something that the speaker ultimately would have to agree right. with? It's right. not which one did they say, it's which one would they have to agree with or else their argument is toast. Yeah. And I like to make these uh, uh, debates very visual. I'm saying, look, you're looking at the person who made this argument and you're asking them, do you have to accept this idea? <laughs> and if they say, no, 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 I don't have to accept this idea, but that flies right in the face of their conclusion, then you know that you've identified a necessary assumption. Yeah. So my, they might even be wrong, right? But you could see like the disconnect if they decide to go ahead and disagree with that answer choice. If they say, no, no, I don't have to accept that as true. Then you'd be like, what? Like, how can you not accept this answer choice and still draw that conclusion? If it's a necessary assumption, then there will be a major problem, which is, which is in effect the negation test. But the reason I tell people to ask themselves what must be true first is that in some ways, in some cases, um, just asking yourself what must be true can be faster, right? Because you don't have to negate the answer choice. You're just directly asking yourself, yeah. does this have to be true? And then if you get down yeah. to two and you're still like, well, boy, both of these seem like they have to be true, you can bring in the negation test. Yeah. And then sometimes the negation test actually makes an answer choice easier to read if it's like a double negative or already has a negative in it, negating it might make it easier to understand. And if yeah. the answer choice is hard to understand in its original form, then negating it makes sense. But yeah. if it's hard to negate it, then maybe leaving it in its original form and just asking yourself what must be true might be easier. I agree, though. I'm definitely not going in and negating all five answers. That that can take a, a long time. Sometimes it can be really confusing to try to negate an answer. Uh, mm -hmm. If that answer already has a double negative or a triple negative in it, and you're now adding another negative, um, you know, or, or trying to figure out which negative to take away. Yeah. I guess we should say there is a safe way to negate an answer choice. Mm -hmm. um, this really helps people a lot sometimes. If you don't know how to negate an answer, like say the answer does have two knots in it. Mm -hmm. and you're trying to negate it and you don't know which one to take out, it can be really helpful to just put the words, it is not true that in front of the answer choice. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're looking at B, you think, oh, you know what? This might have to be true in order for the argument to make any sense. Let me see. Mm -hmm. It is not true that, and then read that answer choice out loud. And you'll be able to see, because um, what you're doing is you, you have to negate the entire answer choice. Yeah. 
And that can sometimes change more than one word in the answer choice. When you like when I'm writing all these new explanations for the LSAT demon all the time, I'm finding very frequently, I'm like, hey, when we negate this, it changes the all to some, you know, and it, change, mm-hmm. it gets rid of this not and it changes all to some sometimes. But you, you have to just, it's the totality of the answer choice is what you're negating. If this whole thing is false, what happens? And so put it, it is not true that in front of the answer choice. And then if that becomes a devastating weakener, then you know you've found the right answer. If the argument can still survive, then, well, I guess it wasn't necessary. Yeah, a little warning there, though, too. A lot of times when people start negating answer choices, they do negate multiple things when they shouldn't be, Right. It's like cars that don't have airbags are not family friendly. Cars that don't have airbags are yeah. not family friendly. And, and they take out like, both the knots. Yeah, they take, they're like, oh, I got to negate it. So they're like, okay, cars that do have airbags are family friendly. No, we're just, we're still just talking about cars that are not, that don't have airbags. And we're saying the original sentence said that they are not family friendly. So to negate it, we're going to say they are, or at least some of them are. Yeah, can be. The are, mm-hmm. the, the are not would mm-hmm. turn to, would turn into basically can be. And the way you mm-hmm. see it, again, to go, let me go back. This is perfect for my, my little trick. Yeah. It is not true that cars without airbags are not family friendly. That statement, another way of saying that would be, hey, cars that don't have airbags could be family friendly. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's talk about, should we do, I don't know, what do you talk about the question stems? Yeah, so I do want to talk about question stems. One other thing, uh, a very common structure for sufficient assumption questions. I mean, it's so common that I feel like we probably should talk about it if we're going to deep dive into assumptions. We'll, we'll just maybe do this quickly. This is the the structure that I'm thinking of. So you have an argument, and it's only going to have two pieces. And the first piece, I'm going to say, is a premise. And the premise says something like, Phil is eating a peanut butter sandwich. And then it's like, therefore, Phil will get sick. And that's the conclusion. And although this is a very simple argument, it's short, it's easy to understand. On the LSAT, you can have long arguments, but they still just have two pieces, right? Essentially, it's like premise, Phil is eating a peanut butter sandwich. Conclusion, therefore, Phil will get sick. Okay. So what is the most likely a sufficient assumption that they're going to generate for that question. If you eat a peanut butter sandwich, you will be sick. Yeah. Now, that, to me, is both sufficient and necessary, at least in the context of this argument. It seems like uh, this person is assuming that if you eat that sandwich, if you eat a peanut butter sandwich, then you will get sick. That is both necessary and sufficient. Mm, I don't think so. I, I think it actually is. I know I know what you're you're thinking. You're like, wait, but this just applies to Phil or something like that, right? And this is broader than that? No. What's your concern? I think it's necessary that it is possible that if you eat a peanut butter sandwich, you will get sick. So I would say that the LSAT has on occasion gone further than this and uh, okay. said that because because the person is presenting this premise as the sole premise for this conclusion. Okay. Yeah. They must be thinking, or at least they have to accept the idea that 
knowing that this person is eating a peanut butter sandwich is enough yeah. to guarantee that they're going to get sick. Well, I mean, the other, the other side of that, the other thing is um, they might not understand their own test as well as we do, to be honest, <laughs> for real. And second, um, that sounds like it might have been a very easy question. Mm-hmm. If, if that happened on a very easy question, it would be like, well, the obvious missing piece was if you eat a peanut butter sandwich, you'll get sick. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course. The, the problem is that they test that same shit on, on harder questions. Yeah. And, there will, and you, could, you could end up missing that because there's a better answer. Yeah. So it, that's the, I, I don't know. I mean, the control, this is a very overriding, controlling thing on logical reasoning is that you have two chances not to miss that question. Mm-hmm. You, you can like sometimes not understand that the right answer is right. Because mm-hmm. you're like, wait a minute, that's sufficient. But I don't think that that's really critically necessary. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, but what other answer are you going to pick? Yeah, Because those other four answers are garbage and yeah. you should be able to avoid picking them. And then you should be able to come back to that answer and go, you know, I have a quibble here. I don't think that this is strictly necessary, but it's got to be the answer because it's just the obvious missing. Yes. It's the best necessary assumption answer that I can find. Yeah. Yeah. So it's weird though, that they're so technical in some places and then they're so sloppy in others. Yeah. And I don't even know if they're like, that's why I say, I think we understand it better than they do. I, I I don't know. I, I agree. The point here though, stepping back is just that you have this premise and you have a conclusion and in a sufficient assumption question, the answer is often simply an if-then statement or something close to an if-then statement that effectively connects the premise to the conclusion and not the other way around, right? Like the, often the most tempting wrong answer is going in the reverse. It's like if the conclusion is true, then the premise is true. Right. That's not how arguments work. You assume that premises are true and then try to prove the conclusion from them. That's another example of just confusing sufficient for necessary. I yeah. mean, they, they give you opportunities to fall into that trap all the time. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, and then what I wanted to illustrate a little bit more was that, okay, so the most likely answer in a sufficient peanut butter sandwiches, I know where you're going to go with this. So I predicted peanut butter sandwiches make you sick. Yep. Mm -hmm. So what would be another sufficient assumption answer that would be correct in a sufficient assumption question? Well, this would, and this is what freaks people out mm -hmm. because there might be an answer that says peanut butter makes you sick Mm -hmm. and students will go, wait, what? That's it says peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't, this one only says peanut butter or what if the answer said sandwiches always make you sick? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, either of those peanut butter makes you sick or sandwiches makes you sick is enough to prove that this dude's going to get sick if he's eating a peanut butter sandwich. Yeah. So the fact that it, you know, that it only mentions one of the things or like, what if, Hey, he's eating a peanut butter sandwich and a tuna sandwich. Therefore he's going to get sick. So mm-hmm. my prediction would be if you eat a peanut butter sandwich and a tuna sandwich, you're going to get sick, but peanut butter sandwich or tuna sandwich, either one of those independently would, if it says that makes you sick, just mm-hmm. tuna sandwiches always make you sick or tuna always makes you sick or any fish always makes you sick. Mm-hmm. Any of those would, would still make the argument win. So they're still sufficient. Yeah. And you can go even more extreme, right? You can just say eating always makes you yeah, sick. Right. It's like. Well, no, I mean, we're not just talking about eating. We're talking about eating specifically a peanut butter sandwich. It's like, yeah, but if it's true that eating always makes you sick, then this 
this dude's getting sick. Right. And so now the conclusion is proven, and that's all we have to do. Because the question is not what must be true or what is necessary. The question is what, if it were true, would make the conclusion true? Yeah. How do we get? How do we get there from here? Where yeah. are we going? Be real sure you know what the conclusion is. Here's what we're trying to prove. What evidence do we have? And then we can use any piece of that evidence plus the correct answer to prove the conclusion to be true. Yeah. Yeah. Now, if it were a necessary assumption question, can you think of any answer that would be necessary but probably not sufficient? <laughs> yeah, like um, peanut butter does not protect you from all sickness. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it has to be assumed that peanut butter does not prevent protect you from all sickness. Because if it yeah. did then you wouldn't get sick here. Yeah, like a magical sorcerer has not declared that sandwiches will give people eternal health. Yeah. That's that's necessary. It's weird, though, because like obviously the speaker did not contemplate a magical sorcerer blessing all sandwiches. Mm-hmm. But if a magical sorcerer had blessed all sandwiches in such a way that if you eat a sandwich, you never ever will get sick then that argument would fail. So that's necessary. Of course, it's not sufficient, Mm -hmm. uh, but it is necessary or else the argument is dead. Yeah. One last example I'm thinking of is just something like as bland as some people or sometimes people get sick after eating. They don't even talk about peanut butter sandwiches or anything like that. And it's like, well, yeah, you have to accept that idea because if that never happens, (laughs) if people, if, if, if some people don't ever get, if, well, no, so the the sorry, my sentence was some people get sick after eating. If that's not true, then no one ever gets sick after yeah. eating, and this guy can't get sick after eating. Therefore, that is a necessary assumption. Yeah, I, I that's why I I I would prefer peanut butter sandwiches can make you sick mm-hmm, mm-hmm. to peanut butter sandwiches will make you sick. If this was a necessary assumption question, yeah, yeah. I want to talk about the question type families? Yeah, you want to do that quiz like we did last time? Sure, go. Okay. I will um, give you some examples. So the argument depends on assuming which one of the following. I'm giving a moment for the listeners. Yeah. The argument depends on which one of the following. Mm-hmm. Assuming. Sure sounds like it must be true. Uh, and that means it's a necessary assumption question. That's exactly right. It also lacks the word if, right? So it's not like if it were assumed. It just depends yeah. on this. Yeah. That's a huge indicator is that if it has the word if it's almost always a sufficient assumption question and if it doesn't it's almost always not but i bet you're going to try to trip me up with one you know yeah remember we had this discussion a long time ago and i have been on the search for sufficient assumption questions that don't have if and i think i've only come across like two or three okay and then necessary assumption questions that do have if i don't think i've ever seen that ever Anyways, here's another one. The conclusion drawn above follows logically if which one of the following is assumed. Yeah, we get to assume the truth of the answer choice when we pick it. If Mm -hmm. which one of the following is assumed, it would, what did you say? Make the conclusion properly drawn? The conclusion drawn above follows logically. Oh, follows logically just means proven. Mm -hmm. So the conclusion will be proven if which one of the following is true. So that's a bottom-up sufficient assumption question. Oh, yeah, that's right. We forgot to talk about that. So necessary assumption questions are in the top-down family because you're essentially asking yourself, if the argument is true, which one of the following must be true or must be assumed? 
Whereas sufficient assumption questions are bottom up, they're in the bottom up family because you're saying which one of the following answers, if it were true or assumed or valid, all which all mean the same thing, if which one of the following answers were true, which one would make the conclusion above true? So which one would prove the conclusion above? That's a bottom up question. Yeah, it's real easy to see how sufficient assumption questions are change the argument bottom mm-hmm. up, mm-hmm. but it's harder sometimes to see how necessary assumption are supported by uh, top down questions. And that's because of my example about the magical sorcerer blessing, you know, not blessing <laughs> the sandwiches. Yeah. Magical sorcerer, not blessing the sandwiches doesn't seem like it's supported by the facts, but it is implied by the facts because if it were false, it would make the argument lose. Yeah. Okay. Um, here's another one. Let's see here. Which one of the following is an assumption required by the argument? Uh, yeah, it doesn't say if. It says which one is an assumption. That is a uh, top-down necessary assumption question. Yeah. All right. Let's see. What about this one? Which one of the following principles, if valid, most helps to justify the political theorist's reasoning? So the most helps to justify makes that a strengthen question. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Okay. How about this? Which one of the following can be properly inferred from Rosen's statement? Um, I mean, I would just call that a must be true question. Yeah, exactly. So the properly inferred is referring to the answers, not the conclusion. Oh yeah. Thank you. Yeah. People see properly inferred and they go sufficient assumption question. Yeah. <laughs> but that's cause you, you know, you have to read every word y'all, every single word of the, of the question stem. It's not two words that indicate the question type. It's the entire stem that indicates the question type. Yeah. Here's another one. Which one of the following can be logically concluded from the information above? I would just call that a must be true question. Yep. Again, that logically, what was it? Logically concluded. That was referring to the answer choices, not to the conclusion in the argument. Right. One more here. Ooh, the argument, this is good. The argument above is based on which one of the following assumptions? Necessary assumption question is yeah. is yep. based on which one of the following assumptions. I let me try to do one for you, Ben. We have to go live in one minute, but let yeah. me let me try to do one and then we'll wrap up the assumptions sure. um, for now. Maybe we'll come back to it on a future show. But which one of the following is an assumption that must be true if the conclusion above is to be properly inferred? <laughs> that's still a necessary assumption. Yeah. That's the one where it's a necessary assumption question, but it does have the word if in the question stem. Yeah. You know, I have seen that or something like that. Yeah. What we did see, or at least what I've seen is they replace the word if with in order to, but it doesn't matter. The logic is exactly the same because in order to means if, Yep. but what you have to focus on there is the word assumption and is the assumption required or is the assumption, the thing that's if true. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it said, which one of the following is an assumption or which one of the following is must be true if the conclusion is to be properly inferred, they're still asking you for a must be true. Yeah. All right, Ben, we got to go live. So we you got to invite go me. Yep. Yep. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm going on there. Let's see here. Go live. Hey, what's up everybody. Welcome to Instagram live. Cool. Thinking else at Instagram live. All right. So let's look at these. Uh, yeah. Let's do the test anxiety survey picks. Yeah. Okay, cool. This is hilarious. I think it's hilarious. I don't know. Maybe it's not. 
the first question here. So this this is a survey that came out to everyone who took the test. Okay. Is that right? I think it is. I think it's everybody who took the L. I got forwarded this by multiple people, by the way. So thank you for forwarding these in to uh, help at thinkinglsat.com. Yeah. But we have, please rate your agreement with the following statements about standardized tests in general. And so then they have like, you know, I'm usually below average. I'm usually, I'm good at it. I'm, I perform as well as I ought to. They ask you so many of these stupid questions. Based on my intelligence, I perform as well as I ought to on most standardized tests. And you have what? to like agree, <laughs> disagree, strongly agree, strongly disagree, <laughs> like all this. So that's this, the first This is question. more like a test of your confidence, right? Based on my yeah. intelligence, I perform as well as I ought to on most standardized yeah. tests. If you like have an inflated view of yourself, yep. you're like, no, I always perform below. Right. <laughs> well, because they're going to ask you how nervous you are about the LSAT. And yeah. then they, but they want, first they want to know how nervous you are about standardized tests, like in general. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So, um, then the next one, yeah, they just have you agree or disagree on so many different things. Um, okay. Here's, here's the next one. Please rate how strongly you agree or disagree with the following statements about your most recent experience taking the LSAT. First one, it took me less time to complete the test than it took other test takers. <laughs> Agree or disagree? How would you I even was, know? Are you cheating? Are you looking at other people? How about this bullshit? I was able to review all of my responses before time expired. Wow. Review. That's wild. Like, do they expect that anyone is ever reviewing? Do you ever review any answers? I don't. I mean, certainly people do, right? Clearly there are people who are like going back because they ask, can I go back? But when they go back, when these folks do, and I tell them not to, it's still like they're going back to two or three questions. You, you want to review all of your responses? They're looking for like those 180ers who are just sitting there and twiddling their thumbs. You should get them right the first time through. You should not be reviewing anything. I had enough time to respond to all of the questions on the test. Why do they even ask that? They know the answer. <laughs> okay. All right. So I delegated my time. Of, I delegated. Hmm, that's interesting. I think, I think you allocate your time. I delegated my time effectively enough to answer the number of questions necessary for the score I wanted. I don't get this. Like, for the score, I guess they don't know. It would be easier, you know, if they just asked you what your score was and then, or what the score, the score was that you wanted. And what score did you want? Well, you, you didn't make it. So you must not have allocated your time effectively. This is strange. Oh, here's some more questions. Okay. Here, please rate how you felt while taking the test. I worried more than other test takers about my performance. I don't really, I don't get these questions. I don't know that people would really know the answer. It's so subjective. I felt anxious. Um, I could not concentrate on answering the questions because I was anxious. Well, if you couldn't concentrate, it probably was because you were anxious, so you could agree to that one. Wow. I became so nervous that I found myself thinking about irrelevant things such as other people's performance. I don't know if that's actually irrelevant. I thought about the consequences of my performance on the test. Who doesn't? This stuff is silly. Um, okay, well, anyways, I'm not sure why they're asking these questions. Nathan had some theory that he wanted to share, I guess, but until he recovers. Do you guys have any? Uh, oh, Nathan, you're back. What What was the theory that you had about these questions or what the LSAT is thinking or LSAC? 
I don't know. It's just, I think that they are definitely looking, I think it's partially it's for accommodations. Mm, to see I if think they might be served. Because mm-hmm. if people are getting accommodated for anxiety and now they're asking everyone whether you feel anxious, you know, they're trying to correlate the time mm. thing because mm-hmm. that's what they're the most common accommodation is extra time. Yeah. So they're trying to ask these questions about whether you're anxious. I don't know. I mean, it's hard to imagine anyone saying that they did not feel anxious except for like real, real top scorers. Yeah. Or that guy in free solo, right? That part of his brain was, was <laughs> My gone. amygdala is compromised and I, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Did you go through? How many of these did you go through? I, I just kept reading. Yeah, I got to anxiety. Um, didn't get down to the, please rank how nervous you were while taking the following LSAT test sections on a scale of one to three. <laughs> one, most nervous. Three, meaning least nervous, but still nervous. Um, yeah. And then they give you LR, reading comp and games. Did you read these ones? Please rate how confident you are that the following statements are true or false. No, I didn't if you get take, to that. Oh, Okay. If you take the LSAT more than once, law schools will only consider your highest score. Wait, wait where are you, dude? I'm on the Google that. Doc. I don't know. Did I go yeah. too far down? No, maybe it's not. It's a long ass thing. This is the f- <laughs> this is page this is page uh, five. Wait, page six of the Google Doc that we okay. have, where we have all these images. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, that's interesting. Oh yeah, I see it. Wow. Hmm. They're asking you whether you believe that LSAT scores are good indicators of a student's ability to perform law school level work. I think it is, by the way. They're, yeah, I think it is too. They're asking, I mean, I think there's a minimum threshold that, that you should be trying to get to. Um, once you have taken the LSAT, there is no way to keep test scores from becoming part of your score report. Uh, they're asking people if they believe that. That's interesting. Yeah, there is a Isn't way to cancel it. I, I was just like, I was scratching my head when I read this the first time. I was like, damn, what are they, what? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I don't really have any speculations, but yeah. How nervous are you on the different sections? Then they start asking you, do you think the LSAT is a test of intellectual ability? Yes, no, or I don't know. Oh, this is interesting. I wonder if they're getting into like the whole like growth mindset or fixed mindset, and if, like, like they're asking this directly, but they're really trying to figure out what you think, what your mindset is, and whether that means you do better on the test, because they can look at your test score. Yeah. Were you particularly aware of your demographic identity, e.g., race, ethnicity, sex, family background, and so on, while taking the LSAT? These are Were so you subjective. Particularly aware. How would you like? I'm particularly aware of that. Am, am I or not? I think a lot of these things have consequences whether you are consciously aware of that or not. It seems like they're asking that question because of that weird thing where if you have uh, like blacks and Latinos, if you ask about race yeah. at the beginning of a test, like they do worse. They do worse. Just because yeah. you asked them. Yeah. Um, do you think that your demographic identity affected your performance on the LSAT? Please select any aspects of your demographic identity which you were aware of while taking the LSAT. (laughs) So were you aware of your sex? Were you aware of your race and ethnicity, your age? Uh, Then you have to rank those ones, like which ones were most important, Hmm. which ones affected my performance most, which ones affected my performance least. I'm sure this is all interesting information. The problem is it's so long. 
I suspect that most people are not completing it. So now the ones who actually are completing it, it's becoming a very biased group, right? I would definitely think, yeah, this is not a good survey because it's so, so long. Now they're asking how much time you spent preparing for the LSAT, approximate number of weeks, approximate number of hours per week, uh, how long you've been out of college. Here now, this is, here we go. Please rank how the following changes might reduce your anxiety on a scale of one to five with one meaning most likely to reduce and five meaning least likely to reduce. So it's possible that these are the things they're thinking about on to try to, they want to try to reduce people's anxiety. taking the LSAT. <laughs> I, I feel like they do it on purpose to make people as anxious as possible. But anyway, um, so reducing the total number of questions on the LSAT. That would be effective (laughs) (laughs) adding more than one 15 minute break during the test i don't think that's gonna help too much that would suck that would make it worse all that does is make the day longer changing the phone policy so that you can bring your phone to the test center i don't know how much that would help with the test itself but i think that would help a lot of people people always are wondering like how am i gonna get there so on some general level for me, that would make my that would make the day easier. Yeah. Just like bring your fucking phone. What, what do people you, do on their phone too? Are they texting each other the answer? Like I don't know. It seems like it's so dumb. I, I mean, I guess you could in theory. You could, yeah. You you could, but I mean, there are proctors in the room. Like yeah. the proctors would not see you texting. You, that's some awesome. I mean, I I don't know kids these days. I guess they have like their phones in. Uh, junior high or whatever. So they're like pretty easy, pretty good at like texting, pocket (laughs) texting or whatever. You take the first half of the section. I'll take the second half. How about this one? Being able to choose which of your scores can be seen by law schools. Oh, that would be awesome. That's the way to do it. That would clearly favor the rich. That would be so fucked if they did that though. I mean, oh, it all, come the, on. that's what they hey, do it on already, other tests. <laughs> it already favors the rich, you know, yeah. like rich people already take it multiple times and the schools only care about your highest score. So Nathan, the um, world favors the rich. So that's, oh, the yeah. challenge and that I'm, we're I know life's not fair, but like, that's a change in favor of the rich. <laughs> that's yeah. like making the w- world more favor the rich. Yeah. Well, uh, hold on. Even, the, even if it does though, m- think about it, who would not oppose this? I mean, who would oppose this? No one would. Cause even if you're you're like, well, let's gosh, like you can choose. You can choose not to have it seen. It benefits everyone, even if it benefits other people more. I would oppose it on justice grounds. Justice. I, oh yeah. man. Okay. I don't see it yeah. as a justice issue. I see it as whether even if you even if you don't have a lot of funds to pay for the test, you're like, well, I have the option to 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 abolish this score. That's personally that's gonna relieve stress. Cause I, I don't feel sorry to. for people who can only afford to take the test once or who like the LSAC fee waiver only lets you take it twice. I would insist on a more robust LSAC fee waiver or how about this next one? Reducing the cost of taking the LSAT. How about both of them together? There you yeah, go. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. So like yeah. if sure, if you want to be able to choose which of your scores can be seen by the law schools, then also at the same time make it way cheaper and give the fee waiver to more people. I mean, I, dude, we were texting about this yesterday. Yesterday was the score change deadline mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or the, the test date, uh, the test date and test center change deadline. I hadn't looked at those prices in a while. That's fucked, dude. Yeah. It's, it's, it's almost a month before the test. Mm-hmm. It's $125 to change your center or change your date. 
So it's 190 to register in the first place. And then if you want to move it to June, like, oh, I'm not really ready. You're telling them a month in advance that you're not going to be there. And they're going to charge you $125 more to take it on a different day. Also, yesterday was the day where you could have withdrawn for a partial refund. Mm-hmm. And that partial refund is only $50. 50 out of 190 Yeah, you're losing like, 140 Come on, man. Really? That's just, it seems so, it's ridiculous that it's 190 to begin with. And then they're going to charge all that money for it. I don't know. I mean, like, because, hey, you have students that are like this. But, I mean, we have students that are rich right? Mm -hmm. We have students that are solidly middle-class and we have students that are poor. And I get students all the time telling me, no, I I just, I'm, I I can't afford 190. I like, I don't want to, I can't pay that money to take it multiple times, Mm -hmm. you know, or like I got the fee waiver so I can take it twice, but I can't take it more than twice because the fee waiver only lets me take it twice. I, I don't know, man. I, anyway, Please rate how anxious you are taking this survey. (laughs) (laughs) Super anxious. I don't want to fuck it up. That was the last question on the test. Rate how anxious you are on taking this survey. They should then have another one. What questions did we forget to ask you? (laughs) Yeah, seriously. What questions would you like added to this survey so that it can be even longer for future Test takers. Okay. Anyway, enough uh, mocking that. You want to get to these uh, questions yeah. that people asked? Okay. Yeah. So thank you to all the people who RSVP'd. We really appreciate that. We'll just start from the top. Kara says, thanks, Kara. I don't know if she's here. I haven't said, I don't know. Kara says, I had a friend whose goal was to go to an in-state school with a full ride. He studied hard and took the LSAT and made a 170. Nice. He applied, then found out his school only has full tuition for out-of-staters, and he only got half because it's an in because he's in-state. How can you find out in advance if your school only gives out out-of-state full rides? Had you ever heard of this before? No. Me either. That's this seems pretty fucked up. Why would they do that? I don't know. Because they it's just a negotiating thing. Like they know that you're. They, I guess they just assume like, well, you're going to go there. Like you're, you're in state. You want to stay in state. You don't want to go anywhere else. So we can charge you full tuition. Yeah. Out of staters. They don't believe you're going to actually go there. So they're like, yeah, we probably have to give you money to get you to come to our shitty place or whatever. Yeah. I don't know. Any advice in this situation? Can you apply from another address? <laughs> <laughs> Move out of state for a year so that you could reapply and get the full ride coming back in state. I would push back on it. I mean, I would for sure try to negotiate. At least ask. Yeah. I mean, what do you mean you only give in state? You what? Mm-hmm. Like that actually sounds like a thing that you would. They would not really want to go public. That's like fucked up to your local community. Yeah. We don't I mean, help just, the locals. Yeah. If if like yeah if all of a sudden like Southwestern here in LA was like, Oh yeah, no, we don't give full rides to people who live in California. We only Mm -hmm. give full rides to people from out of state. That's not a good look. Is it for people in your like community? Yeah. What do the alums know that? (laughs) That's weird. We are all local. (laughs) Yeah. That's what I'm saying. Um, 
that's that's odd. that's that's odd. Um, and I had never heard of this before. So Kara says, "How can you find out in advance if your school only gives out of state full rides?" Well, that I would just email and ask. And ask. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Email them and ask. Call them and ask. Whatever. Say, hey, I noticed on your five hundred nine, you give a lot of full rides. Um, I heard that some schools only do that for out of staters. Is that true for you guys? Mm-hmm. All right. Um, next one. Yeah. Ria says, how bad do four W's look on a transcript, not WF's, which I assume the difference is W is withdraw. WF is like you failed. W, <laughs> you withdrew and failed. <laughs> you ran away. From a yeah. Day. I don't know. You, you failed because you just didn't show up for, I'm guessing that's what it is. It's like, if you just didn't even take the final exam, that's a WF. Mm. Yeah, but if you actually withdrew, it's a W. What do you think? How do you think schools interpret that? This is kind of speculating. Yeah, how bad is that? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it all depends on how it. Like, did you do it all in one semester? Did you do it? Do you do it once a semester? Do you have trouble like committing to a class? Because basically, what happened is you took so long that you actually withdrew after the withdrawal deadline, right? Or I guess you withdrew in time, but not early enough to have it not show up on your record. Yeah. The semester must've already started Mm -hmm. and probably there's like usually a grace period or something, right? A couple weeks or something at the beginning of the semester. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't think it looks great. On the other hand, your LSAC GPA is your LSAC GPA. You know, how closely do you think these schools are actually looking at your transcript. Yeah. I don't think they're looking that closely. It depends, right? I mean, yeah. if you have good grades and a good LSAT score, like if you're 75th percentile type of a student, which you should be, if you're going to be going to this school, because you should be going on a scholarship, if you're going to go at all, mm-hmm. I, I think that those four withdrawals aren't going to matter because they like your grades and they like your LSAT. Yeah. At, at the margin, I could see it mattering a lot. Where they're going to be like, uh, well, you know, you already have a 25th percentile LSAT and 25th percentile GPA. Mm-hmm. They start looking into your transcript and they see all this with all these withdrawals and they're like, mm, this person might have some issues. I, I would think you might want to write an addendum maybe, or mm-hmm. if there's a, if there's a question that obviously asks you like to explain this type of thing, yeah, you might want to give them some reason. Um, I, and I hope that that reason is like, I had unresolved medical issues that have since been resolved Mm -hmm. and you don't need to go into it. (laughs) Yeah. Don't need to go into it. All right. Next question. Mm -hmm. Okay. Joe says, uh, my last three practice test scores are 164, 164, 166. And my LG is hovering around minus nine. Whoa. Yeah. Those are damn good scores with minus nine on games. Mm-hmm. I've only been studying for about a month and I'm taking the March LSAT and then taking again in June and or July, depending on my results for the March LSAT. Should I focus on grinding logic games for the next few weeks to get the biggest increase in score and then focus on a more holistic approach for June and July? Or would that be a mistake to focus only on logic games for now? Uh, no, I don't think it would be a mistake to focus only on logic games. I wouldn't do that, but I think that given that that's your biggest weakness by far, if you did that, you would see an improvement in your score. I guess I would 
focus a lot on games, maybe yeah. 80%, and then yeah. just make sure you're doing a timed 35-minute section every now and then in LR and reading comp. Yeah, that's always my advice. People like to be so black and white about things, right? Mm-hmm. They're just like, I'm going to do only this for a month. Well, I never say do only anything for a month. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like 80%, sure. Like, okay, Joe, you need to do games every single day between now and March. Yeah. Like your route to 170 plus is perfect logic games. I mean, you don't even need to get perfect logic games to get 170. Yeah. But you could get 174 if you get perfect logic games. Yeah. So you need to be doing at least one time section of games plus unlimited review every day between now and the March LSAT or between now and the time when you get perfect. Yeah. And then but take, also, take a break one day. You're just like, I'm sick of games. Do the logical reasoning or reading comp once a week. Throw in LR. Throw. I mean, I was hoping that he would be able to do it in addition to. Yeah. Um, nothing wrong with doing two sections in a day. So, you know, make sure you're doing a section of LR, a section of reading comp here and there. But yeah, you should be grinding games hard um, most mostly every day. Um, if you're, if you're working, boy. yeah, and you only have an hour and a half, do a, a game section timed and then do a LR reading comp in the demon. That's easy. Yeah, right. To stay sharp, that's that seems, yeah, I think that's really good advice. Okay, so that's all the questions that Annalisa sent me from um, the RSVPs. Have we had any more questions come through on the chat Let's on the here. live? Or this is a good time if you're listening live. Uh, this is a really good time to chime in with questions. We also have a Pearl versus Turd that we can do on the show agenda. Okay. Well, hey, if anybody's here and wants to ask a question, ask a question. Otherwise, let's do this uh, Pearl versus Turd. Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Uh, Pearls versus Turds. This is where we take a piece of received wisdom from um, wisdom in scare mm-hmm. quotes yeah. from the uh, LSAT ether. And we decide whether it's a pearl of wisdom or a turd. And so far we've found one pearl, nine turds and four ties. Yeah. So this was apparently told to a student in a Kaplan class, which already makes me worried. Mm-hmm. It says stop doing full length tests. Teacher will show you the way. <laughs> <What>? <laughs> And it says teacher in square brackets. So it was the name of the teacher. Yeah, yeah. Let's say Lisa. Stop doing full length tests. Lisa will show you the way. Was it, wait, would it be Lisa or would it be I? Or was it someone else was introducing the teacher and like. I don't know. Yeah, oh, I guess it was. Yeah, I guess it was I. Yeah. I will I show will. you the way. Wow, that's like a bold claim. Especially from a Kaplan teacher. <laughs> sorry if you're a Kaplan teacher listening to this. Sorry for shitting on your horrible company but anyway um kaplan's the worst at teaching the lsat i what do you think about this tip um okay so there is some truth to this stop doing full-length tests like there are people out there who do way too many they do one a day um i had someone i was talking to the other day and they started talking about their plan they're like yeah i'm thinking of doing a test and it was like every other day or something and i just was like looking like huh and they're like uh i can tell that you may not think that's such a good idea i was like yeah that might be (laughs) a little much so to the extent that people are overdoing full-length tests i would say this is good advice um but literally what this is saying and the lsat is all about literalism stop doing full-length tests that sounds like you shouldn't do them at all which is bad advice 
Yeah. I Well, this is similar to the advice of like, don't do any homework before the class or like, no, we don't send you any materials oh, before yeah. the class. Like, no, don't do anything. That's, That's the so company that comes from the company that shall not be named. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh, don't, it, don't worry. Just wait till the first day of class starts and we'll give you everything you need. That's, that's yeah. sucks. Like send out, if you have decent materials, why don't you send them out before the class yeah. starts so that people mm-hmm. can get a head start? Yeah. I don't get it. Stop doing full length tests. Well, you know what? This is actually, I'm going to go ahead and put this one solidly in the turd category, I think, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. because you, <laughs> it's telling people not to work on the LSAT. It's just like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. Mm -hmm. Don't do the actual substance of the test. Instead, do our shitty books and shitty lessons. Yeah. Like, oh, you should be doing the fake, the fake stuff in our books and lessons instead of doing the real, the real shit. Hey, Ricardo says, how many tests should you do? What do you think, Ben? Well, so, yeah. So I have my class do one a week and uh, every Saturday. The reality is that some people should be doing them once a week, that they're ready enough for that, that they've studied enough throughout the week that they have something new that they can test out on their new test. And some people, it just takes so long for them to review a game or whatnot. So depending on where you are in your preparation, um, you may need to dial that back to once every other week or even once every three weeks. Um, when the class starts, I actually often don't have people come back the next week. So there's usually, it's every other week at first and then it becomes every week, but everyone's at a different place. If you're already scoring in the high one sixties, every weekend is going to be totally fine. Yeah. I, I think you should do as many as you have time and energy for if you can productively, right? Yeah. Right. But you have to review all of them. So Mm -hmm. I think if you don't do at least 10, before you take the official test, you probably haven't done enough to reach your pure, you know, your, your, your potential. I think most students should probably be doing 15, 20, you know, but I've seen people do 40 or 50 and still continue to improve. So, uh, you know, you should definitely be doing them. I'm always pissed when I see some of these big prep companies have like their agenda is, is like, four weeks of studying and then a practice test. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or they've got like, they're, they've been in the class for eight weeks and they've done two practice yeah. tests. Mm-hmm. What? How is that? <laughs> what are you studying if you're not doing actual tests? I just, I don't get it. Yeah. Patrick gave you a compliment. Yeah. Oh, thanks. Um, <laughs> I started your online class, Ben. I really liked your first lesson. Oh, good. Cool. That's exciting, Patrick. I'm glad to hear that. You know, one thing about tests, I just last thought I had is that sometimes people focus on like the total number of tests that they have to take before they take the LSAT. They're like, yep. how many do I need to take? And I'm like, well, I mean, it's really just how much time you have until you take the test and whether you should take another one. It's always a decision that you're making on the margin. You take a test, you review it. When you're done reviewing it, then you're ready for another one. But and then take it. And then that may be 10 between now and your test, or that may be 20, just depending on how good you are and how fast you can thoroughly review. Um, there is no magic number. I actually say this all the time. Quantity, quality is way more important than quantity, right? Like how well you review a test is way more important than how many you do. But of course, if you can do more well, then you should do more. So just keep going until test day and then, like okay, I'm done. 
that's yeah. The other thing is you don't have to necessarily do full length tests, all sections and mm-hmm. all four sections or five sections in a row, whatever you can do full length tests, 35 minutes a day, one section a day, and you're still going to be getting your, you know, tests in. Yeah. I think it's most important that you do the 35 minute bursts and the review. That's mm-hmm. the, that's the real important bit. How many full length tests you do? I mean, I was telling a student the other day, I don't care if you ever do a full length test. If you're worried about it, then full length tests are great. Mm-hmm. Like actual, actually sit down and do it all at once. Yeah. But I don't think it's really that much of an endurance test. If you get good at the 35 minute sections, then you're probably going to be fine. There's no magic number. Ben, when you, <clears throat> you know, we've seen those score charts that are sent in by a couple of our different listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, scores fluctuate wildly even after people have been doing 30 or 40 tests Mm -hmm. and scores can continue to improve even after you've done 30 or 40 tests. So Mm -hmm. I think what people should be doing is keeping track of their results. And then, you know, are you where you want to (laughs) be? You should keep doing them until you're where you want to be. Yeah. Um, if you, you know, if you have more progress that needs to be made, then, Maybe you should do more. Patrick says, can you talk about a thorough review of a section? Yeah, that's actually a really good question because I was just thinking about those people's scores who's who go up and down. Yeah. And a lot of times I think that I have this theory. Now, of course, it's not proven, but that when people's scores go up and down, that can be a function of a variety of things, of course, how how well you're feeling that day and so on. But a lot of times I think what happens is that LSAT questions in my mind can be hard for two reasons in general. One, either the language itself is hard or the underlying logic is hard. But I think um, when people get questions wrong because the underlying language is hard or the language is hard as opposed to the logic, if they don't review that language and try to get their mind wrapped around how to read and unpack sentences, then on another test, if the language happens to be such that it clicks, they get it right. Yeah. And then the next time the language doesn't click and they get it wrong and they're like, oh, like, what's wrong with me? Well, it's because you're reviewing, you're focusing so much on the logic, which is great. You got to get that going. But you also just have to focus on how to read and how to understand sentences. And when you don't understand them, how do you unpack them sentence by sentence to the point where you really understand it so that you're less likely to get thrown off by that convoluted language. And if you can get that convoluted language down, then you're more likely to interpret sentences correctly. And if you interpret them correctly, then the logic, which you've been building up over time is not going to vary as much. Okay. So anyways, how do you review? Um, Well, when you're going over a question, just make sure that you can articulate out loud to yourself why the wrong answer is wrong and why the correct answer is correct. Most people say, if you hear yourself saying something like, oh, okay, this answer is better, that's not good enough. Because imagine LSAC writing you a letter and saying, I understand you liked B, but C is better. Right. You'd be pissed. So can you write something to someone else who chose the answer you chose and explain to them in concrete terms using specific words from the answer choice and the passage that explain why that answer choice is wrong, then you've understood it well enough. If you can't, look at our videos. If that's not enough, then eventually you may need to turn to tutoring. But you have yeah. to like, you have to be able to explain those in concrete terms, just like LSAC would explain to you. They wouldn't say it's a better fit. They wouldn't say it's 
it's <laughs> it's just wrong or it strengthens it more. Sometimes people use, they're like, don't say better. So they're like, okay, well, the answer strengthens it more. But why? Why does it strengthen it more? Of course it strengthens it more. That's why it's the correct answer. But <laughs> can you dig into the words? Yeah. I mean, I even start like a step back from that. It's like, mm -hmm. what do you think about the argument? Sure. Mm -hmm. That's almost always the first thing. I mean, mm -hmm. as I've been writing all these new explanations for the demon, people are confused about the, you know, they, oh, they really need help on the question. And they're, if, when they write comments, they're always asking me, what's the, you know, D, B versus C. Mm -hmm. Tell me about B versus C. And I, I just, it's like, hold on. Dig into the argument itself. What do you think about this argument? Mm -hmm. Is the argument good? Is the argument bad? Mm -hmm. Yep. Why? Yeah. And if you don't spot, I mean, like parallel reasoning questions, you know? Yeah. They'll ask you, it's a matching pattern, parallel reasoning question, and the logic is good, mm -hmm. which it, you know, isn't that often, but sometimes it's good. And if it's good, then you can get rid of all the wrong answers that have bad logic, but you yeah. have to recognize that it's good logic. If you didn't, then you're not, you don't, you don't got it. Yeah. And if there's a flaw question, it's not about comparing answer choices to one another. It's just what's wrong with the logic of this argument. What's the problem here? Mm -hmm. Did you catch the flaw? Yeah. So, um, I don't know. This is a very long answer to a, a good question, but there's, there's a lot there. There's, What's up with the argument? Is the argument good or bad? Did you figure that out before you went on to the answer choices? What type of question is this? Did you make a prediction for this question? Then when you get into the answer choices, now it's about like, why is the right answer right? And why didn't you pick it? Why is the wrong answer wrong? And why did you pick that? There's a lot there. You can spend a lot of time. I would say, sorry to go back a little further. You, you were, I was talking about the answer choices, and you were talking about understanding the passage. Yeah. And I would say, go back even one more step. What did you think of the first sentence? Right. What was your reaction yeah. to that? Like, so many times people are like, they read the first sentence. There's, there's a problem when people don't understand it. But then when they do understand it, they're like, yeah, I get it. And I'm like, well, what do you think about that? And they're like, what do I think about it? Like, I don't know. I mean, kind of makes sense. I'm like, okay, it makes sense, but like. What does that imply? What does that sentence prove, if anything? And then if you think about that for a half second, when you read the next sentence, you're so much more ready for it. And you're like, aha, this guy is going too far because that's not what this first sentence implies. Or, yeah, that's actually what I just thought. And this guy is saying the same thing. And so then you just move into that next sentence even faster and you do the whole process again. Yeah, it's surprising how often that happens where you're halfway through the argument and you're just screaming about like, wait, no, you can't do that. That's a problem. Yeah, but you're, you're doing, doing that, that because you, th yeah, <laughs> and I'm doing that. But the students who are struggling are like, no, 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 I got to hurry up and get to the, I got to get done with this argument so that I can answer the question. Or and even I got to like, get done with this argument so I can evaluate it. That's not necessarily true. <laughs> yeah, right. You should be evaluating it already. They're yeah. they're like fucking with you halfway through the argument. You should be on top of them for that. You can't let them, you know, give you a bunch of bullshit in the argument. You halfway through the argument, you might already know the answer if you're tuned in and you're arguing with it. Mm -hmm. All right. Thanks, Patrick. That was a long ass answer. <laughs> Do we have other questions uh, for our, uh, on Instagram folks? Why? Why do we <laughs> st study the LSAT? <laughs> 
um, because you could get yourself $150,000 worth of free law school tuition. Yeah. That's the primary reason. <laughs> yeah, I was just talking to someone last night, actually. They were talking about, uh, what was it? They were Oh, they were talking about how the test is worth so much in the law school admission process. And I was like, yeah, it's just not true for other tests. It's not true for the GMAT. It's not true for GRE. When you're applying to business school, those things matter, but they're just, they're, you know, not as important. And um, anyways, yeah, the, the LSATs outweigh, you know, two points can get you $10,000. That's what I said. Oh, yeah, that's what I said to him. I said, well, if you get two points higher, it's worth it because you might get ten grand from that, from the same school that you would have been accepted to. And they're like, no way. Ten, two points, $10,000? Yeah, I'm like, it might even be even more because you have schools that are at the 50%, you know, the median score is a 162 and the 75th percentile is a 163. That's true, I think, at um, UF. I think that's the school I was just looking at the other day. But in any case, a couple points. Dude. I think ten thousand dollars a point is not crazy. I don't. Yeah. I, I mean, if you go from a one sixty to a one seventy, that's definitely going from no offer to a full ride at some school somewhere. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah. that's and I mean that's one hundred and fifty thousand dollars for a ten point improvement. Yeah. So that's fifteen thousand dollars a point. Yeah. Maybe one more question. We got a question here, yeah. so let's answer this one and then we'll wrap it up. What is your thought process and stages that we go through in a logical reasoning question? Okay. So this Good is question. kind of what I, w- I was just talking about. It said, so this is this is what happens. And this is, happens in class too, by the way. So if you watch some of our videos, you might see this. But I will read the first sentence and the most important thing when I'm reading that first sentence is just, okay, what's it saying? And what that often involves is like trying to visualize what they're talking about so that I can understand the sentence on a gut level, right? Like, like, oh, okay. So they're talking about passing a law that's going to prohibit smoking in the workplace to protect employees from secondhand smoke. So I'm actually thinking like about those employees in the workplace, (laughs) And I'm like, okay, so there's this guy smoking, and they're like, you can't do that anymore. And the point is to protect those employees from that secondhand smoke. I'm seeing that. I, I, for right now, I'm seeing a restaurant, right? And then I'm thinking, like, I guess that makes sense. Okay, like, that seems like a reasonable law. And so then I will go on to the next sentence, right? So it's like understanding and then having an opinion about that sentence, right? And then the next sentence I'm going to read it and they might say something like, well, this law is stupid or whatever. And I'll be like, wait a second. It seemed reasonable to me. Why do you think it's stupid? That's it's that's where the engagement comes from. When you formulate an opinion about the sentence and then you read the next sentence, you're much more likely to have a reaction to it because you already have an opinion about the first sentence. If you just read and try to understand the first sentence, you're much more likely to do a shoulder shrug when you read the second and then the third. And so I'm always trying to put these sentences together. And when I get done with the argument, it always comes down to, well, was this an argument? If it was, do I think it's good or bad? And if it wasn't an argument, well, the sentences are going to be related to each other. What do I think has to be true given what was said? But Ben, you should have already been holding the question stem in your head this whole time <laughs> while you were doing this, right? Like when you were reading that mm. first sentence, 
the fact that it asked you for, you know, a, a necessary assumption of the question, isn't that really important that you have that, you know, that you're looking for a necessary assumption while you're reading that first sentence? Yeah, it's absolutely crucial. Yeah, without that, that I would never <laughs> succeed. <laughs> I feel like this is the best argument against reading the question stem first. It's, it's distracting. Like, yeah. You can't answer the goddamn question until you've read the argument. You if, if anybody's ever trying to teach you some gimmicky strategy that does not involve actually understanding what you're reading, they do not understand logical reasoning. It's, it's about being the master of the argument. Think about mm-hmm. it, y'all. You're supposed to be a lawyer. Yeah. If you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be able to read arguments and understand them and figure out what they want mm-hmm. and figure out what evidence they have and figure out what conclusion they want and figure out why that's bullshit. And then you tell them why it's bullshit. Yeah. You and, know, one thing that's interesting, sorry about that. Uh, yeah. I've, no, I've talked to students who work at law firms or things like that. And it's it's true that sometimes attorneys don't do so great on the games. But universally, I, I the, at least what I hear is that students will give like these experienced attorneys, you know, that's been like 30 years and they, they haven't seen the LSAT in ages. And they're like, well, what do you think of this argument? And they're like, yeah, well, that's the problem. And they know, yeah. they know what the conclusion is. They know what the evidence is because that's what they do with their life. I mean... <laughs> Yeah. And I mean, that's how it is in reality. Like you can take total novices, but if they're really good readers and if they're like really like they know they're a good reader, good enough, a reader to be sticky on the argument, like, like refuse not to understand, right? Force Mm -hmm. yourself to understand that argument. If you do that, you can just get the questions right. Even with like almost no LSAT prep at all. I mean, or with literally no LSAT prep at all. If you really get into that argument and understand what they want, understand what they're saying, then yeah, whatever, ask me any question you want about that argument. And I can answer it with no prior LSAT knowledge. Games of course is different. I mean, games like requires specific LSAT practice in most cases. Mm -hmm. I guess we get a few like engineer types who just crush the games right off the bat, but that's pretty rare. Mostly you have to practice the shit out of the games. Logical reasoning and reading comprehension is just easier than people make it out to be, but it requires, you have to win this battle of will. You have to decide that you're the person that's going to understand everything. Yeah. That's it. I just, I refuse not to understand it. If I read the first sentence and I didn't understand it, I reread it. I do not go on to the second sentence. I reread it. Like Ben was saying, I try to picture it in my head, hold it in my head, figure out what they're talking about, make up a little example. By the time I get done with the argument, I'm going to have a real good idea what they want. What's the facts? Did they make a conclusion? Is it valid or not? Then go into, if we're talking about process on question types, I should have an objection. Half the time I've already like, wait, wait a second. You left out this critical part of your argument. Then they ask me a question and I have some skills for different question types, which we've been going through on our fundamentals series. And so depending on the different question type, then I'm going to have a little bit of a different prediction as I head into the answer choices Mm -hmm. and a different process when I go into the answer choices too, right? Like on a sufficient assumption question, I already know the answer. Yeah. I'm just looking for it. On a necessary assumption question, I have to be a little bit more generous with my answer choices because as we were talking about earlier, it could be something that was just an unanticipated potential weakener. You know, this better be true or else the argument's going to fail. Mm-hmm. All right. Last one, <clears throat> since we got one more question and then we're going to wrap it up. So thanks everybody for coming. Um, so we have a question here that says any tips for a retaker who's going to be an instructor at a big test prep company? 
what should I do to get least affected by the amazing <laughs> curriculum? I see. Wow. So someone who does not yet have their best LSAT score, but it was good enough to get hired by some big prep company. Any tips on how this instructor should ignore their own curriculum while teaching their class while also studying they, what they're, this person is saying, I don't want to get infected by the horrible curriculum that I'm going to have to teach at Kaplan or whatever. Well, so as much as I dislike Kaplan's materials or whatever company you're at, there's going to be some good advice in there. So I would say every time you're giving advice, decide for yourself whether that's actually effective or not. I mean, if you're listening to the show, then you would know our opinion on a lot of these things. And then decide why it's better or worse. Just become an expert. That's what You're trying to become an LSAT yeah. instructor. So uh, I've experimented with a lot of different techniques over the last 12 years I just tried it out. I was like, oh, someone did the game this way. I remember uh, Manhattan LSAT had some interesting way to do in-out games once, and I tried it, and I was like, okay, I'm going to give it a go on a few of these games, and I didn't like it. <laughs> I was like, yeah. and then, But then I was like, well, why? Why don't I like it? Is it more effective? Could it be more effective for other people? And I, I think that overall just made me a better test taker. So even though I ultimately decided not to follow that approach, um, I think getting familiar with it is not a bad thing. And I think you'll become more aware, consciously aware of what works for you and what doesn't work for you. And ultimately that's going to be the best thing for your score. What's going to be best for students? Yeah. In a conversation between a wise man and a fool who learns more. The wise man. Yeah. Mm -hmm. The wise man can always learn something even from a fool. The fool is a fool because the fool never learns. So as you're going through this horrible curriculum, you can look for pearls in there. Uh, you could email the show help at thinkinglsat.com if you want to send in some um, funny, horrible pieces of wisdom that you spot. The other thing that I would say, and this is just sort of like more of a teaching tip, but my primary mission as a teacher is just to tell the truth at all times. I'm, I'm just trying to tell my class how it is. And so if you're going to be in there teaching and you don't believe in some of the stuff in the curriculum, I did this when I was a power score teacher. I was just like, Hey, listen guys, I think this part's bullshit right here. Yeah. And here's why. Yeah. And so, you know, like just feel free to tell your class to ignore big chunks of the curriculum uh, that you don't agree with. And I would add to that. I think the goal of trying to speak the truth to the best of your knowledge, of course, we're all biased and we're going to be incorrect and our beliefs have to change as we realize that. But if you try your hardest to tell the truth as you see it, then you're, that could include saying, I don't know. I don't know what's best for you. And I don't know what's best here. But starting that conversation is going to help you come to the answer much faster than just being like, well, I'm going to do what the company said because that makes me look good. Or I'm not going to do what the company says because that makes me look good. Oh, I'm so cool. I'm different. No, just try your best to figure out what the truth is and keep striving for it. Yeah. Be evidence-based and be, again, strong opinions loosely held. Like Be open to changing. Be open to considering other perspectives. But you got to say the truth as you uh, feel it. Mm-hmm. All right. I think we probably got to wrap it up there, Ben. Yeah. Oh, last thing. I will answer this question really quickly. Do you have any okay. tips for ways to prep for 1L year once we're in? Uh, the book that I read while I was at 2L was... Um, Getting to Maybe, How to Excel in Law School Exams, I would get that book. That's a good place to start. That is a good one. Also, just like 
as you're in your 1L year, make sure you go to the library and check out all the uh, old exams because you should really mm -hmm. be studying the old exams for whatever class you're taking more than you're do more than you're reading for class. Instead of that, like do the old exams, work on those. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Thanks guys. Okay. That was fun doing um, Instagram live. Yeah. I like that. By the way, if you have not joined the Facebook group, there's uh, over 1200 members there. Um, just go to Facebook and then search for Thinking LSAT Podcast. You'll find us. Um, we are on Instagram at Thinking LSAT. That's what we just left. We're on Twitter as well at Thinking LSAT. Nathan is at NFox. I'm at Olson Benjamin. If you want to take a class with me, you can go to strategyprep.com. If you want to do a class with Nathan, go to foxlsat.com. We also both do one-on-one -on -one tutoring on Skype and other online classes. If you have not heard about it yet, although I think you should have by now, uh, check out lsatdemon.com. That's our joint project. The demon will follow your progress as you continue to submit answers, and it will give you questions that are tailored to your skill level and what you need to work on. So we consider it one of the most effective ways to use your study time, especially if you're on the go, since all three sections can be done on your phone. That's that. Um, do you have anything to add? No. Okay. That's it. That was show number 183. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't play for law school.